so warm and sunny I could barely see my notes. This is amazing. All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at Grace and Peace. And now we come to our time together in God's Word. Um, if you have a Bible with you, either flip or scroll to 1 Corinthians. We're beginning a new series today. And uh, if you don't know where 1 Corinthians is, it's the back sort of in the New Testament, the back fifth of the Bible. Um, if you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Turn, turn left there. Um, but, you know, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians and really in all of Paul's letters, they function something like an overture. If you've ever, if you're a fancy person and you've been to the symphony or a musical, you know that the, the first thing the orchestra plays is kind of like a bunch of snatches of, of songs they're going to play during the show. And so when you listen to the overture, it's telling you what's coming. A, a movie trailer works the same way, it gives you some idea of what it's about, what it's going to sound like, what it's going to look like. And the first three verses of 1 Corinthians are just like that. We're going to be hitting the main topics of 1 Corinthians today in just the first three verses. So hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. God, I, I, I pray that your word would find a home in the hearts of your people today, that you would transform our minds, that you would convict us where we are out of accord and encourage us with your grace and empower us to live as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. A um, key date in world history, one of the most important actually, was June 16th, the year 1054. It happened in a place called Constantinople. Now Istanbul was Constantinople. There's a song about it. It's really good. And in the, in the great cathedral there, which is still there, the Church of Holy Wisdom or the Hagia Sophia, um, it's quite beautiful. It was kind of the most important church in, in the, what was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. The patriarch of Constantinople, the, the top dog in the church in that part of the world, was about to celebrate communion. And I like to picture this, you know, the, the, I've actually been in, in the, the Church of Holy Wisdom and it's this beautiful, I mean, you know, cathedral of cathedrals. It's, it's got these amazing mosaics. It, it, it's, it's, it's like very sort of, I don't know, what's the word, austere? You know, and you have to picture the patriarch at this time probably had an awesome, just good beefy Greek guy beard and the robes and whatnot and celebrating communion and everyone's into it. And then there's just this record skip moment. And because someone has walked in and everybody notices that he's there. In the, standing in the doorway of the church is a guy who, by the, by the look of his clothes and everything, he's a foreigner. He's from the West. He's from Rome. And, and in fact, he's wearing the clothes of a cardinal of the Church of Rome, which is what he was. You see, back then, there wasn't two churches or multiple churches. There was just one 
global church. And there was two main leaders, two people who were kind of the most important, the Patriarch of Constantinople and the, the Pope at Rome. And they beefed with each other a lot for a long time about important things, like which one of them was the most important. They really did fight about that. Other important things like should you only use unleavened bread in communion? These were crucial questions that they had to fight about, you know? And, but they had always, for a thousand years, held it together. To this point in the history of the church, there had never been a church split. And so that's why this moment is so key. You know, you could imagine everyone standing there looking at this cardinal that's walked in. And you can imagine pin drop silence. I would probably wear boots or something clunking through that cathedral. He walks right up to the altar. He takes this piece of parchment. He slaps it down right on the altar. And he declares in the name of the Pope that the Patriarch of Constantinople is excommunicated. It wasn't, this was a papal decree. Not saying you're wrong, but saying you are outside of the body of Christ. You don't belong to Christ's body. And that was the beginning of what is known as the Great Schism, which has never been healed. It was the first major church split. And since then, you know, Pandora's box has been opened, so to speak. There's been split upon split upon split, both at the macro level. One can think of uh, during the Civil War, all of the Southern churches excommunicated all the Northern and all the Northern, all the Southern saying, and this isn't a disagreement. This is saying, you guys are not part of the body of Christ. That's what they're saying. And of course, since the advent of social media, this has simply gone into hyperdrive. Any day of the week, you can open up, I don't know, what are the kids on these days? Reddit, is that a thing? people right you just just click on anything where you know, Facebook reddit and whatnot and you will see people who are both believers in Christ throwing each other into hell over you name it over masks or not masks over over critical race theory that they watched a video about over whatever theological issue that seems important to them at the time and it's not just we disagree it's saying your faith is fake and you don't belong to Christ you're not a real Christian we could deal with disagreement we could deal with debate but division division where we stop recognizing each other as family in Christ it has disastrous consequences for the church first of all it, it really damages the witness of the church for people who are outside when they hear Christians slamming each other all oh, those Presbyterians those Methodists those non-denoms Catholics whatever it's like ill you know and if you're if you're here and you're not you're not like part of the church or whatever. You're like, yeah, I hate when they do that. It's so gross. You guys are supposed to have it together, man. Or uh, imagine this. Think of how much this, these divisions where people just don't work together. They don't recognize each other as one body. How much it undercuts the mission of the church in the world. If you took every professing believer in the world, all those resources, all that influence, all those connections, and tried to do something about global poverty, education, healthcare, like care. You see what I'm saying? You could get a lot done, couldn't you? The, the body of Christ would be amazingly effective for God's mission if it were united. And not only 
are there those dire consequences, but it's just simply against the blatant teaching of Scripture. You see, we're, we're, this is not the first time there's been potential for division in the church. The letter of 1 Corinthians was written to a very divided church. The church at Corinth, as we're going to see as we go through it, was a hot mess. And their main problem that Paul is addressing is they are divided by race, by class, by who their favorite teacher is, all sorts of things. And so if I had to say in one sentence, what's the big picture message? What's the command of first Corinthians? It's to undivide the church. And we see that right here in verse two, when he says to the church of God in Corinth, you notice, unlike other letters, he doesn't say two churches. Right? There was not one meeting in Corinth. This was not the time where Christianity was tolerated. These were a bunch of house churches throughout a major metro area. But what does he say? To the church at Corinth. He says, uh, uh, called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere. Right? That this is a call from God to be with everyone who names the name of Christ. This is even more blatant when we look a little later in the chapter at verses 9 and 10. He says, God is faithful who has called you into what? Fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Another way to say that, undivide the church. Now the question is, why and how? Division is something that comes very naturally to fallen human beings. You don't have to try. If you just stop trying to, to unify, you will divide. That's the way things work in churches and families. And you know, we've, we've all experienced this. The, the, the main reason that we're going to see and that, that he starts out with is that Jesus is Lord of the church. What is there that is holding the body of Christ together that is stronger than the things pulling it apart? It's that Jesus is Lord of the church. Well, what do we even mean by that? And how does it help? Three things we're gonna see here, that Jesus is Lord of the church. It's that he owns the church, he's the founder of the church, and he's the savior of the church. He's the owner of the church, the founder of the church, and the savior of the church. So, first of all, Jesus owns the church. We see that very clearly in verse 2. To the church, what? Of God. That of packs a wallop. That's known as a genitive of possession. Okay? In the same way that I am the husband of Sharon. Right? It's she owns me as husband. I am her husband only. I belong to her. Right? That In that role of husband. The church of God. God means that this church belongs to Jesus, not just this one, but the entire thing. And you also notice as we, as we read it, how many times was Jesus called Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ? If you read through the first nine verses again and again, Paul is dropping our Lord Jesus Christ like it's going out of style. It's not a throwaway line. It's an emphasis. When you call someone our Lord, it's saying, you're the honcho, you're the one in charge. This is yours, not mine. And this makes all the difference in the world. Ownership. In your own house, whether you rent or you own, you don't need to wear pants, do you? 
If you don't feel like it, there's a couch you don't like. What you can get rid of the couch. That's fine. You know, if there's peanut butter in the fridge, you don't need to use a spoon. You can go finger. It's cool. It's yours. However, if I were to show up at Derek's house and do all those things, you know, I'm like, you show up with no pants on it. Lily is not there because that just gets real weird. And I'm just like, yeah, Derek, peanut butter. I, I like bringing a sledgehammer. He's like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't like this wall. I think it'll open up the space if I just smash this wall out. I might be right. It might open up the space, but I can't do it. Why? Not mine. It's his. In the same way, the fact that Jesus owns the church helps us to begin to undivide it because recognizing whose it is matters. So many splits are caused by people saying, you know what, we just need to split because these folks over here, they don't get it. Their doctrine's impure. Their practice is wrong. They're wrong about this, this, and that. Crucial questions like contemporary or traditional worship. Again and again, people take it upon themselves to split churches, both macro and micro. And here's the thing. The word of God begs to differ with the necessity to split. I can find a lot of places, say 1 Corinthians, where it encourages undivision, it encourages unity. I can't find a single place where it says go ahead and split. Can you? Let me know if you find one. The church does not belong to us. Likewise, a lot of the time, people think that, that the church belongs to them totally. They could do whatever they want with it. These, these are some of the things that cause splits. Hey, you know what would make us more popular? If we could just kind of tone down some of the harder teachings of the Bible. You know, this whole monotheism bums people out. Us going around saying there's only one God. Well, if we could just say that God's whatever and whatever you want him to be, we'd be so much more popular. People would say nice things about us on Reddit. I've never been on Reddit. You could probably tell. That may be. You're not right, but that may be. But it doesn't matter. You know why? It doesn't belong to you. It's not yours to do with as you want. Jesus owns the church. Now, why does he own it? It's because Jesus founded the church. Jesus founded the church, and we ask, well, what did he found? Is it, is it a country club? Is it a, 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 a group of people who hang out and do spiritual things? When we look at verse 2, we see that what Jesus founded is not a club or an association or a movement. He founded a new nation. Look with me at verse 2. It says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Okay, so that word holy is an important word. There's one sense of the word holy where it can mean morally perfect. There's another sense where holy means set aside for special use. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have a tux or a suit if you're a dude. A tux or a suit you're not wearing to mow the lawn. That is set aside for special occasions. It's special use. That's the same idea is that the people at Corinth, the people at this church at Corinth are called to be set aside. They, yes, they're citizens of Corinth and they're citizens of the empire, but they are set aside for God's special use, this new nation. And you know what would have been very curious by its absence to an ancient hearer is that 
This is the opening of a letter, and you know who has not been mentioned? Caesar. This was, this was the time of the ascendancy of the Roman Empire. Corinth was a Roman city, right? It was not one of the taken over places. It was a thoroughly Roman place. And, and a typical letter from this time, it would have two things. First of all, it would drop something about the emperor and how awesome he is, or the empire. And it would say something about the glories of the city of Corinth. This is one of the, the great metropolises of the ancient world. Paul says nothing about that. In fact, he subverts that whole idea that the empire matters. Do you know where? He calls Jesus Lord. The, the Greek word kurios. You didn't call anybody but Caesar kurios. And he's calling Jesus kurios again and again. Jesus didn't just found a club. He founded a new nation. And it's a, it's, it's a nation from every nation. When we look at the rest of verse 2, that's what it says. He says, to, together with who all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, you notice it does not say to, to everyone who calls on his name in the Roman Empire. At this point, the Roman Empire possessed all of the world that mattered to them. North Africa, most of Europe, all of, uh, all of Asia, right up to India, just about, okay? Paul does not say to those inside the empire, but in every place, people from barbarian tribes, the Germans, the English, the Irish, right? The, 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 the Parthians, these folks terrified Romans. They did not consider them brothers. Parthians were cool. They practiced skull elongation, for real. Face tattoos, skull elongation, eat your heart out, Post Malone. But it's a people from every nation. What includes someone? Paul says it here, calling on the name of Jesus, those who believe. So Jesus founded the church, a new nation from every nation. And how does that help us to undivide the church in, in our present time? Well, it cuts the legs out from one of our largest divisions. I like to listen to, um, to NPR and then like conservative talk radio. I just like to listen, try and understand. And, and there's one uh, conservative station I listen to. And they, when they go to station break, they say, you're listening to Crawford Broadcasting, a God and country station. Okay, now the only word I have a problem with in that sentence is and. God, awesome. I'm on board. Country, love that too. God and country, now we got a problem. You know why? Because we're raising, it's, it's almost as if we're raising the United States, or if you're listening from another country, everybody struggles with this national idolatry of elevating the nation as if it were God's primary concern. Jesus did not found America. Jesus founded the church, a new nation from every nation. A lot of the time, what we're seeing, what I'm hearing about what's, what's causing people to just throw each other in hell on social media and in other conversations to say, we're cutting off relationship has a lot to do with what's going on politically in our country. And, and I, I believe that this is driven mainly 
by putting America in the same sentence with God, understanding ourselves to be primarily citizens of our nation and not part of the new nation that Christ has founded. Now, does that mean we check out of civic engagement? No, far from it. It means we're very engaged. We want the USA to thrive, we, but not so that it can be number one and like boost, like we find our identity in America being number one. It's so that it can thrive and help human beings to flourish so that it can do good in the world, right? The, the church is founded by Jesus, a new nation from every nation. We need to undivide the church. We need to embrace our actual citizenship as part of Christ's new nation of every nation. So not only does Jesus own it, not only did he found it, but he also bought it with his blood. Jesus is the savior of the church. Now, the, the, the church at Corinth, as I said, was a hot mess. Corinth, um, if you want to get a good idea of what Corinth was like, it, the, the best thing I can come up with is it's like New Orleans. It's, it's on an isthmus, so it controlled, it was very wealthy, lots of sailors. So uh, sailors bring professionals of a certain kind, you know what I'm saying? In fact, at one point in time, this, the city of Corinth was known, as, known for its thousands of these professionals. It was a big part of the culture. And they would have, um, there, there was a very wealthy city. They had something called the Isthmian Games. Imagine the Olympics and Mardi Gras rolled into one and it happened every year. It's that kind of a place. You know, lots of wealth, lots of sailors, lots of travelers, and, the, and lots of immorality. And that immorality, we're going to see as we go through the First Corinthians, it makes its way into the church. The, the, the church at Corinth was a hot mess. These were not particularly upstanding folks, but look at what Paul says about them. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, and this is verse two, to those sanctified in Christ and called to be his holy people. Now that, that word for sanctified, it, it really, uh, maybe a more accurate translation is those who have been sanctified. This is known as a perfect force. Okay? It's a, a past event with ongoing results. You have been born. There's a past event where you were born, you remain born. Make sense? So this church that Paul is writing to because of their terrible morals, partly, he says what? You have been sanctified. He calls, the, your, your holiness is already a done deal. It's taken care of because Christ is their savior. It's those who have already been made holy. So this is a church that needs grace. It's also a church that has been given grace. And we're gonna see that Paul connects grace with peace in verse three. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a throwaway line before Paul gets to the point. It is the point. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Corinth, that they would know peace instead of division, and that peace would come through God's grace. How does grace lead to peace? I realize it's the name of our church. It's on purpose. Well, Jesus once told this parable. 
about some guy who gets in debt to a rich landowner for a kajillion dollars. And and he's he's telling he's gonna go to jail for this, and he's like to the to the rich landowner, he says, I'll pay back a kajillion dollars. And the landowner says, you know what? Forget it. You owe me zero. You're free. And the guy says, Oh, that's great, I'm free. And he goes out and he sees someone who owes him twelve hundred bucks, and he goes up to the guy who owes him twelve hundred bucks and he chokes him and says, Pay me back twelve hundred bucks. And the word gets back to the landowner who forgave him a kajillion. He says, how can you be forgiven a kajillion and then choke somebody over 1,200? The point being that when we receive grace, we also have to extend grace. That's part of receiving grace is also extending it. How does that help us undivide the church? You know what? The, the problems of someone else their failings their their lack of maturity matter a lot less to you when you're aware of your own failings your own lack of maturity that jesus had to die for you it's a lot harder to heap condemnation on someone when you are aware of the mercy that you need every single day the deeper we understand Jesus as the savior of the church, the more we are going to be able to live at peace with one another. You notice a lot less what's wrong with someone else when you are acutely aware of your need for grace. We need to undivide the church because Jesus owns the church. Jesus founded the church and Jesus is the savior of the church. Now, how do we do that? What does undividing the church look like in practice? I don't know. You guys are going to get so frustrated with me during this sermon series because none of us have ever seen this. We've all seen division. We're, we're going to have to look really hard in the word of God for answers of what this looks like and how we do it and what we can do as God's people of one little church to undivide the church, to bring greater unity, love, understanding, embracing those who are very different from us. So I'm not sure, but here's what I do know. It starts with Jesus. It all starts with Jesus being Lord of the church. This unity that we have has to be in Christ. It's the same, if you've ever seen like an aspen tree, if, if those of you who like to go up to the mountains, the folks who are new, go check out the aspens, they're lovely. Um, now the aspen trees are wildly successful in North America, and there's a reason. It's because an aspen tree, although it appears to be a single tree, is in reality united to every other tree that's in the grove with it. If you cut down an aspen tree, it will grow back. You can't kill it. Why? It's not dead unless you kill every single tree in that grove. Under the surface, they are united by the same root system. They form a single organism. If one side is low on water, it will ship from the other side. Right? I mean, it, it protects itself. It help, they, they thrive. Each tree thrives because it's united to the whole. That is the concept. That is what it's supposed to look like. That we do not 
look at other people in Christ and say, I don't need you when you're outside the body. But we say, I can't thrive. Grace and peace can't thrive without being unified with our brothers and sisters in every place at every time. We need to undivide the church because Jesus is Lord of the church.